We, we, we gave our, our definition. Our definition of a covenant, and I'll give it to you again. I'll probably give it to you quite often. A commitment that establishes a relationship between two or more parties. Commitment that establishes a relationship between two or more parties. This is not simply a contract. And particularly, we're going to look in our sweep of the Bible, we're going to look at covenants between the two parties of God and others. These others may differ, but God and others. And part of the issue, part of the reason why we're discussing this whole topic is that we think it's very easy to have a relationship with God. It's a very simple thing, a very light thing to be in relationship with Jesus. But many experience knowing God without really knowing God. Many experience knowing God on a very basic level. You say, I love Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Which Jesus? What has he done for you? Why do you love him? Do you keep on loving him? Or you say, well, I just try to live for God. Which God? And how do you try to live for him? How do you know what he wants? And is there any good news to report about this God? Or are you just kind of doing things? And when you die, what happens? What's the future of the world? All this is wrapped up in the question of covenant. Let me give you four reasons why this class, why covenant theology matters. I have them there on your outline. I gave them to you so you can keep them and look at them. First, this class and covenant theology matters because it shows us something bigger than our story. It shows us that the Christian story is bigger than just your story. The Christian story, if you're a child of God, you're part of a huge story that began in eternity past with the Father and the Son covenanting together. We'll get to that way down the road. You cannot have a longer story than this story. You cannot have a longer story than this story. Second, covenant theology shows us that God enters into relationship with you and your children. The true and living God is our God. God does not deal with you only as an individual. He deals with you as a people, as a family, to you and to your offspring after you. Third, Covenant theology reminds us that God is not satisfied with simply external fulfillments. He wants internal, internal realities. That's why every covenant has a sign. Every covenant has a physical, tangible sign. Because the sign is meant to point you to the internal reality. The external sign is meant to point you to what should, by faith, become yours in the heart and from the heart. So, big picture, a relationship beyond you, but for your children also, faith from the heart, not just externals. And then fourthly, and very basically, the Bible uses the word a lot. We're not trying here to impose a uh, grid upon the Bible that proves that Presbyterians are awesome and correct. We're not here trying to prove or put a grid upon the Bible that is foreign to the Bible. We want to read the Bible. We want to understand what the Bible's talking about. And there's this word covenant that pops up all over the place. It's actually sort of similar to how I came to look at predestination and election. When I was a, you know, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old, I read the Bible and I'd read it before, but I hadn't really thought about this whole predestination thing. And I read it and guess what? It's all over the place. 
Same thing is true of covenant. This word covenant pops up. So what is it and what does it mean? And of course, we'll come to find that um, the beautiful promise of God's covenant is that God will be our God and He will be our people. You know, the question of pronouns today is all the rage. That's a good thing because the Bible is all about pronouns. The Bible is all about pronouns. Anybody can believe in a God. Anybody can believe in a being. But can you believe that this God is your God? Covenant theology teaches us that the true God, the living God, is your God, our God. Pronouns are important. That's the promise to Abraham. It's the promise to Moses and David. It's the promise to the new covenant people. It's the promise that finds fulfillment at the end of the age, Revelation 21. So four reasons why this class, why covenant theology matters. Any questions on any of that? Any questions or thoughts or expansions on any of that? Okay. Yeah. And then the Reformation. I mean, it was articulated in perhaps a new yeah. way, but there's a story teaching it. You know, there are two types of people who talk about covenants Presbyterians and Jews. And the Jews talk about it because it's what Patrick said. It's not some newfangled thing. The Jews speak about being about the covenant of God, and they do so all the time because that is what forms them. That's what creates them as a people, as a nation, in so many ways. They, they, they cherish it. Now, we need to cherish it, not because it create, not simply because it creates us, but because it is what, uh, what Scripture talks about. And we're not trying to, again, impose a uh, newfangled or even a reform, reformational view. We're trying to impose and understand, rather, the biblical view. So, let's begin here this, uh, this morning with what we're going to start out with. There are three covenants in the Bible we're going to cover in this class. We're going to start with uh, what is in our terms, in Bible terms at least, the first one. This is the covenant of works. Let me explain what all this means. You have here, I gave you in your handout, a uh, quotation from our confession of faith. Let me read it to you. This is 7.2. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. There's a lot here we're going to begin to unpack, but let me encourage you to turn to the first chapter of your Bible. Let me encourage you to open up your Bible. We'll be in the first three chapters of Genesis fairly often this morning. Let's, uh, Let's begin to look here and and realize what's happening in these opening chapters is a covenant. You know, what's interesting is that no other Christian tradition has this doctrine, but every Christian denomination, every Christian tradition, has some view of what Adam was doing and what happened to him, and some thing, some idea of what was going on when God made us. And it's connected always, whatever they think happened, is always connected to what they think Jesus does. 
And that is kind of, if I want to push one link, I'm really getting ahead of myself here, but if I want to push one, if I want to plug the doctrine of the covenant of works or why you should hold to it, I'll just tell you this. Whatever happens to Adam is what happens times infinity to Jesus. Whatever happens to Adam is what must happen to the second Adam. Greater and greater. Well, I'll, I'll show that to you this morning and uh, kind of tease out what I mean by that. But let's, let's go through here and get in the details of what, uh, what this covenant is. You recall our definition of a covenant. A covenant requires two parties. As we look through the opening chapters of the Bible, look at the very first verse. We have, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here is God. This is the first. He is the first party of this covenant. He is the one who initiates it all. He is the one who creates all. And then we skip down very famously, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And in this creation, we begin to read in verse 28 that God speaks to them. So there's this relationship between God and humans, and particularly God and one human, Adam. He speaks to these humans. He says, do this, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, etc., etc. I've given you all these things. Covenants have conditions. Every covenant, every relationship that's a legal relationship like a covenant is, there are conditions involved. There is this very chief and basic condition in the garden. You know what it is. Chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Literally dying, you shall die. You're really going to die. right? So there's a condition here. God gives to these humans, he gives to Adam all that he needs. He gives to him paradise. He gives to him a beautiful, luxurious place to live. He gives to him, well, his own word. He speaks to him. And he gives him a partner fit for him. He gives companionship. He gives work. He gives a task. He gives goodness. He says, you can eat of all these trees, and yet there is this one condition. This one negative condition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. This is the very basic kind of test. And third, every covenant has rewards or blessings, and every covenant has penalties or curses. Rewards and punishments. The rewards here and what God gives to Adam include a people. 
multiply, fill the earth. They include paradise. You have this lovely land. You have this Garden of Eden. And they include God's own presence. More than that, there's the implication that if Adam obeys, there will be life eternal. Right? To, to crown it all, eternal life. You can see this here in um, chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. This is after the fall. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. That is, the, the sign of eternal life was eating of the tree of life. This tree that pops up again in the end of the Bible in Revelation. So we have here this blessing, right? God blesses humans. God blesses Adam. He says, I give you uh, paradise. I give you my presence. I will make of you. I, I, I give you the, the ability to fill the earth and to make people. He does that not just to Adam. Of course, he blesses them. Verse uh, chapter 128, he blesses humanity. And yet there is this curse. The penalty is death. And this is not just death. Death. It's not just physical death. The penalty for death is an eternal death. We can say that because it corresponds to the promise. The promise is eternal life, living forever. And God, therefore, gives an eternal death. It is a symmetrical promise and a symmetrical curse. And so, we have here, these are just the elements of this covenant, the elements of this relationship. Let me give you a couple more, and then I'll stop for uh, questions or comments. Fourth, every covenant has a representation, a representative. Even our HOA documents. Not every person in the neighborhood signed the HOA covenants. We had a representative sign on our behalf. And not every member of the, uh, the kind of lawyer's team signed. They had one lawyer sign. There's one notary, not a million notaries. We do that when it comes to human covenants, so it is the case with divine covenants. There are representatives. The actions of this representative affects others, and in every covenant, this includes descendants. So here we have Adam. Adam the first, as our good Bunyan people will know. Adam the first. Whatever he does will happen affect us. Whatever he does will affect you. And the triumph of sin in his kids is shown when Cain murders Abel. Chapter 4. Cain murders Abel. All right, so sin has its, has its payback, has its price. Finally, covenants have signs. Conditions, blessings, curses, representation, two parties, and then signs. And the sign here in this covenant is, well, at least in part, the tree of life. 
the promised reward for obedience, symbolizing life. So what we have here is a relationship between God and all humanity based upon Adam obeying. It's based upon Adam doing so himself, Adam doing so perfectly, Adam doing so truly. Adam and Eve would get God's paradise. They would get God's presence. They would get God's people. They would become God's people if they obeyed, if they kept the covenant. And yet, what happened? What happens? Adam squanders it. He squanders all three of these gifts, all three of these blessings that God had given to him. To make people, to make children, what happens now? After the fall, childbirth is toilsome, painful. It's painful to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. And then we see God himself cursing This is chapter 3, verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, for you. The ground is cursed, right? To the very people, the whole idea of multiplying becomes a hardship. The whole notion of a a paradise, an earth that's glorious, becomes terrible. It's dusty, it's cursed. And then finally, Adam and Eve are cut off from God's presence. They are kicked out of paradise. Their re-entry is barred. Adam is a covenant breaker. And so are we. Now, that is, in one sense, the component of the covenant. Two parties, God, humanity, and Adam, representative conditions, obedience, particularly the short sharp test of the tree. Don't eat of that one tree. Everything else you have. The blessings, the curses, that's really easy to see, and the sign of the tree of life eternally. That is the doctrine by itself, I suppose. And yet, if you read through the first three chapters of Genesis, the word covenant never appears. So is it fair to call this a covenant? The word covenant's not there. Is it fair to call this a covenant? Why or why not? Straw poll. Is it fair? Am I, am I, trying, am I imposing something here onto the Scriptures? Yeah. If it quacks like a duck, and it looks like a duck, It might very well be a duck. Yeah. Many folks have said, look, you Presbyterians and your whole thing about covenant, there's no covenant in the Bible. There's no covenant right here. There's no, no, the Bible does not literally say this is a covenant. But we don't operate that way, do we? The Bible does not say that there is sin here either. The Bible does not use the Hebrew word for sin, the opening chapters of Genesis. I guess there's no sin then. No, you don't have to use the word for the concept to be there, the reality to be there. Moreover, Hosea 6, 7, when speaking about Israel, says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Now, I'll tell you, there's a lot of debate over that question, uh, over that translation. Some say at Adam, but I, I am convinced 
that like Adam is a better, more proper way to translate it. Connecting, therefore, Israel's sin to the original sin of Adam in Hosea 6, uh, verse, verse 7. Um, so even there, I would argue that the Bible can speak of the original creational arrangement between us and God in Adam as a covenant. But any questions on that by way of uh, opening introduction? That's a lot of information I just threw at you. There's a lot there. Um, questions? Can I make it more clear? A little less muddy? Okay. Very good to note. Um, I'm going to make a couple more points here <clears throat> about this fact of a covenant. A lot of folks will say that covenants are only redemptive. Covenants have to include grace. That God, when he deals with us, only deals on the basis of grace. And how could Adam ever earn obedience from God? He's just a creature, and the distance between the creature and the creator is massive. A human being, Adam, can't actually give true, real, personal obedience. I mean, God's already made him. Isn't that gracious itself? I think we've got to be really careful about saying that there is grace present in the Garden of Eden. If you want to be very loose about it, you can say that. I mean, of course, God. anytime God creates, he's being gracious in one sense of the term. He's not forced to create. He's being gracious. He's being kind in this way. The issue is, however, that precisely because God is God, he can determine the exchange rate. He can determine the terms of the covenant. And therefore, our, our confession uses th this language. Voluntary. Condescension. Voluntary condescension. God voluntarily comes down and enters into a relationship with Adam and humanity. You see, grace, in a loose sense, you could say it's gracious. But typically we use grace to presuppose sin. Grace presupposes sin. Therefore, I think it's probably better, probably more accurate to say what our confession says to describe how God relates to Adam instead of saying it's a gracious act. That may not be a question that uh, any of us have, but it is a live question in, uh, in Presbyterian circles. So I wanted to make you a little bit aware of it. Um, let me make a couple other comments here. Um, Let me go ahead and move on in the time we have to how this connects to Jesus Christ. Adam was called to obey. He was called to obey himself. He was called to obey by looking and fulfilling these commands. He was called to not eat of this one tree. And God gives him that very specific command to test him. It is a test. Will you obey me or will you not obey me? 
And <clears throat> a lot of folks say, well, you know, look, if I'd been there, I would have done, I would have done better. If I'd been there, I would have, uh, would have not eaten. I, I, I would have known it's on the line. The reality is, of course, that we, we would not have done that. We would not have passed the test well. And yet, this is important because when Adam breaks the test, when he fails the test, this is a critical point to note, the covenant of works does not end. The requirements of the covenant of works, this personal, perfect, human obedience is still needed. Somebody has to obey for you. Somebody has to love God for you with all that they are. Somebody has to love their neighbor with all that they have. You see, the doctrine of the covenant of works, it's called works, of course, because that's what Adam is supposed to do. He's supposed to give works in this obedience arrangement. This doctrine is not simply for the garden, but the covenant of works continues all throughout history. It goes all throughout Scripture. It's not abrogated just because there's the fall. We know that because we still die. You still die. Why do you die? You die because of sin. Whose sin? Well, let me ask you to turn to Romans, 15, uh, Romans 5, verse 12 to verse 21. Romans 5. Can somebody read to me Romans 5, 12 through 14? Just that first paragraph there. Romans 5, 12 to 14. Thank you, Mary. We read here in verse 12, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You notice here, sin comes from the world through one man, Adam. Representation. Death comes from the world through sin. We read in verse 14 that death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Notice that. There's a distinction here between our kind of ordinary sin, in a sense, and the transgression of Adam. That's what Paul makes that distinction. He says this transgression of Adam is of a different class. What class is it? Well, it's of a head, representative class. He sinned in our place. Now, if you read on down to verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
verse 19, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Right? You notice the parallel here. One man, Adam, disobeys. What happens to us? Well, many made sinners. That is the principle of covenant representation. In other words, you die because Adam failed. You die because Adam failed to keep the covenant in the garden. You and I die. He broke this covenant. As the old Puritans would say, in Adam's fall, not just sinned we all, but died we all. In Adam's fall, died we all. And God still demands obedience by a representative human. Heaven has to be earned. Heaven is earned. Heaven has to be earned. This is what Christ says, isn't it? Luke 10, 25. I'll read it. You don't need to. Somebody asked him, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, verse 26, Luke 10, what's written in the law? How do you read it? The guy answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. And then Christ says this, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You see, the covenant of works never stops. The demand of the law never stops. If you can do it, you will live. If you can love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself, you will live. Salvation, therefore, is by works. If you can do the law, you will be saved. Salvation is by works. And the surprising thing is that salvation is always by works. In fact, I think this is the point that our buddy Danny Myers made at our camp. Salvation's always by works. And that's why the beautiful picture is found in the other half of Romans 5, 12 to 21 that I didn't read. Romans 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. If many died through Adam, one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. One man's disobedience, Adam, can't be the same man. And so who has earned heaven? The personal, perfect human who has given obedience, namely Jesus Christ. He is the one who has fulfilled the demands of the covenant of works. That's why he's born of a virgin why he's not born like all of us by ordinary descent. That's why his birth is miraculous. Because he does not come stained with the failure and the sin of Adam, but he gives perfect, full, perpetual obedience. 
You see, without the covenant of works, without this view, without understanding Adam and his relationship with God rightly, you actually have the gospel fall apart. And the gospel simply becomes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, Jesus died on the cross to wipe away my sins. That's part of the gospel. But the gospel is not just that. The gospel is that Christ obeyed where I didn't obey. Christ loved where I didn't love. Christ cared where I don't care. Christ is the true image of God. He fills the earth with his spiritual children. The church is his Eve, his bride, through which his seed is born in the world. He is the one who gives his disciples not just a breath of life, but the living Holy Spirit. Therefore, he is the better Adam. He is the second Adam. And that's why in Romans 8, 29, we are not renewed into the image of Adam. We are not renewed in the image of God. We are not made like Adam again as Christians. We are renewed in the image of Christ. We bear the image of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the beautiful thing about it is that we don't go back to the garden. If you're a Christian, you don't go back to Eden. You have something better. You have recreation. You have new creation. You don't, have, you, you don't regain the old creation. You have something better. And you see this really, and I'll, I suppose I could begin to close with, with this. You see this in, in our calendar. I've made this before, so I'll make it, make it point to you all again. In the Garden of Eden, you have a European calendar. You know in Europe they have calendars that begin on Monday and they end on Sunday. That's the European, that's the, that's the European calendar. That's the Garden of Eden calendar. Work six days, rest on day seven. But as Christians who receive the perfect personal human obedience of Jesus Christ, our representative, in him we've already got heaven earned by his works. Therefore, we can have American calendars now. We can start our weeks off on Sunday, the day of rest, and then love and work out of that rest. We are transformed, therefore. And yet, so many of us and so many of our, our friends and our family are still trying to give this. I mean, isn't this why people try to, to work the rat race? Isn't this why folks are always trying to do more and more and more? Isn't this why the millionaires need more million dollars to be satisfied? Isn't this why you can't, Bill Gates cannot give enough money away? He can't be, he can't do it. You can never be beautiful enough. You can never be strong enough, but you keep trying. You keep trying to do it. You can't be happy enough, but you keep trying to do it. Trying and trying and pushing and pushing because there is something inside of us, namely the covenant of works. We know we failed, but we keep pressing on for it instead of resting in the fact that Jesus Christ has given all that's required. He has done everything fitting, everything necessary, everything needed for you. He is second Adam. So any questions on any of that? Any pushback, any clarity I can give?
Yes, sir. So the Garden of Eden seemed like a physical place, and it didn't end when Adam and Eve left. It says the cherubim left the garden. So where is the garden now? On the moment, I'll tell you it's in, uh, what is it, Jackson County, Missouri? I think it's where they'll, they'll tell you. If you can try it going there, uh, jokes aside, if you look, it seems like it, doesn't it? Look at the four rivers mentioned. There's four rivers mentioned four, um, in Genesis. Two of them we know, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And then there's these other, there's the Habilah. And there's these other ones that we don't really know. We don't, they're not located on any ancient map that we're aware of. I mentioned that simply as one example uh, of a broader thought, which is this. It is obviously a real place, and yet there's a sense in which it's, it's a place we can't get to, right? I mean, it's cursed. We can't get back there. So I, I'm not sure that it's, uh, I'm not sure that there's, there's a place on earth at this point in time that we, uh, we can reach and find. What are your thoughts, Ted? That may not satisfy. What are your thoughts? Uh, I didn't have a thought except, except for it just seemed like it was there. I don't know if it went away at the flood or if it, it didn't go away immediately, though, with uh, the sand that was still left. The fountain just got removed from So, yeah. The other thing I would say is that, and, and a guy named Greg Beal has done a lot of good work on this, 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 this view, is that the garden's not just a garden or a place. It's also uh, described as kind of a temple, kind of a holy place, a separate place. And Adam is seen as a priest. And so I think that kind of holy overtone with the other thoughts I've mentioned, again, points to the fact that, yes, it's an earthly place, and yet it, there's something about it that's unearthly. And again, I'm, I'm speculating here. I think we're all kind of just shooting from the hip here a little bit, but uh, I don't think we can, I think, you know, I don't think it's, uh, you know, in, in uh, Iran or Iraq necessarily, but we're wrong. Other thoughts on that? I mean, anybody else have? Yeah. I would assume so, yes. Yeah, I, I don't think we, we can find it. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when Yuri Gagarin went to space. You know, the atheist communist Russian. He said, "I didn't find God up there in heaven." Well, that's not heaven. You know. And you have a Bible teacher, you may not believe the Bible, you just know to teach the Bible. And there's a lot of uh, higher criticism on this whole first three chapters. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I got a little bit of it in the end of my life. 
in the first dungeon where he was speaking to them, but in the next chapter he created moments. So how is he speaking to them in the first chapter? And so there's you know, lots of conversation about that. How Jewish people told us story, how he started to conclude the story, right. he went into detail parts of the story, etc. etc. But if you start out trying to disbelieve it or disprove it, then you will get plenty of evidence from the teacher in a modern Bible study. Yeah. Reform. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You head over to head, head, head up the Covenant Covenant College. That'd be good. Well, on that note, I suppose I should close, and this is not at all connected to anything we've been discussing. But um, last week, I was very encouraged by a gal named Molly Wor Worthen. Some of y'all may have seen this in the Gospel Coalition website. She uh, teaches at UNC Chapel Hill. Historian, great gal, and she had a long interview. Uh, about her recent conversion to Christianity. She wrote on evangelicalism 10 years ago, very good book, but uh, as a historian guy myself, I, I appreciated her, uh, her, her thoughts. And one of, the things, one of the things you pointed out, Jim, related to your, your, your point, is that she hadn't really read the academic work on the resurrection. You know, guys like N.T. Wright or Richard Bauckham that have done really good work on that, on that question. She hadn't really engaged with it. And, and a lot of the scholarship, a lot of the uh, academic consensus about these chapters comes from people who haven't engaged with the, uh, the, the best arguments from a uh, biblical standpoint. And we should engage with the best from other people as well, right? But, but the point is that, uh, you know, you can read, uh, and we should read um, the best that we have to offer, that Christians have to offer. And should be scared of that. So, any last questions before uh, before we close up shop here, or comments? Yes, sir. Yeah, no, I have. So I have. That's great. So, um, yeah, for the nerds, let me pull out my. my yeah. I did not know that actually. I will spoil things and say I have not memorized the kid the children's catechism. I did the shorter catechism, um, but in, in I need to. I need to. Uh, so we, the, the name can be called four different things. Actually, there are four different names. We'll, we'll, I'll wrap it up here. All right. So th this covenant can be called works. That's kind of the classic terminology, and that refers to the uh, the condition. You have to obey. You have to do. It can be called, and it is called, as Patrick mentioned, a, a covenant of life, which is in our larger catechism and shorter catechism. It's called both it's called a covenant of works in the confession and a covenant of life. And what that means is simply describing the promise of the covenant. So works is what you have to do. It's called the covenant of life by some folks because it describes what you get, right? The promise, the reward. Um, others call it, John Murray, I think, occasionally calls it the covenant of creation, which is just the setting or the time at creation. That's fine. I, and then lastly, the older uh, nerds called it the covenant of nature, which uh, dealt more with kind of the, uh, the, the, the relationship between the creator and the creature. The creature was a natural creature. 
Uh, I mean, any of these, again, these two are the most popular. So that's my short explanation for uh, your question, Patrick. Is that helpful at all? Yeah, I'm not picky. They're both good. The only, I think the other issue is the covenant of work sounds kind of like legal and cold, and covenant of life is life. Everybody loves life, right? We, you want to be pro-life, not pro-pro-works. I don't know uh, besides that. Um, yeah. Well, let me close this in prayer, and then we can get ready to worship God. Father, we thank you that you have made us to work. You've made us to know you. You've made us to live in your presence, and we are delighted that you have not left us dead in our sin, in our breaking of the covenant, our failure, our death, but you have given us life in Christ. Thank you for his work as our second Adam, his fulfillment of this obedience required. Take that burden off of us, Lord, and instead give us that yoke that's easy, that burden that's light that comes from the hands of the Savior, that comes from the hands of our new head, Adam, that we rejoice in him, in Jesus Christ, our older brother, whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.